Well, it is good to have you be a part of worship today, and I want to welcome in those of you who are joining us live uh, through the web, or maybe catching us later in the week in an archived version. Either way, it's good to have you be a part of worship here at Freedom Church. We are in a series that is entitled Unexpected Heroes, where we've been doing character studies in the Old Testament, looking at uh, guys, and ultimately it's going to be some women too, who were greatly used by God, that when you look at their life, we're just so tempted to go, how on earth... And why on earth would God choose this person? Just a fresh reminder that God chooses the most ordinary, the most troubled, the most broken people through whom he does great things and gets much glory, which gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? To know that he would use people like us. And so uh, today we're going to, I guess it's fitting on Father's Day, we're going to look at the most manly man in all the Bible. We're going to be looking at the life of Samson. I feel like what I have... Playing in the background, manly men, 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 manly men, men. I mean, Samson was the ultimate man's man. And uh, his story is truly one of the most peculiar in the Bible. Really, a lot of these guys we're looking at this summer have very odd stories. Samson, you're, as you're going to see, his story is one of those, it's of a man that God used in a significant way. But quite honestly, we're going to see that many of the lessons that we learn from him, we learn because he screwed it up. And we need to make sure we don't do it the way that he did it in many areas of his life, and that's okay. We can learn from the positive and from the negative. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Judges. Uh, We're going to start in chapters 13 and 14. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to take the first half of the message and I'm just going to tell you his whole story, at least all of it that we're told in the scriptures. And then we're going to take a little bit of time in the second half to go back and sort of unpack some of the craziness of his story and say, well, what are we supposed to learn with this? What are we supposed to do with this? If you haven't been here the last two or three weeks, I'll just remind you where we are in history. The book of Judges falling between Joshua and the books of Samuel and Kings. It's the, it's the time in history between the 20 or 30 years where the Israelites came in and took possession of the Holy Land under Joshua. And the time 300 years later when the kings began to reign over a unified uh, nation of Israel, the 12 tribes coming together under Saul, David, Solomon, and then a divided kingdom. So we have this 300-year period of history that's just a chaotic, bloody season where the recurring theme is there was no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so the entire book of Judges serves as a reminder that if we're left to our own decisions and our own judgments as to what's right and wrong, we will make chaos. Judges reminds us of that from start to finish. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that there's a cycle in Judges that gets repeated six times. Essentially, the very same cycle repeated again and again. You just sort of change the names of the central characters and of the invading people. The Israelites, in in each of these six cycles, they do the same thing. They enjoy the blessing of God, and then a generation dies off, and a new generation comes along who ceases to serve the Lord, and they start marrying all the pagan people around them and adopting their practices worshiping pagan gods and when they adopt all of these pagan practices it stirs the anger of God his protection over his people is removed and every time a new group of people would invade some ite would come in the Midianites the um, some different ite would come along the Ammonites and they would invade and horribly oppress the people of God and eventually after some number of years they would realize wow this is stupid we abandoned God and that's why we're in this pickle and so they'd start praying and asking God for relief and he would raise up a judge a charismatic leader who would lead in a, a fight of rebellion to you know 
run off the, the evil ites who've taken over, and then there'd be a season of blessing. And so that's the why, why it's called the, the period of the judges, is these judges were these charismatic leaders that would usually be both political and military leaders who would be really anointed by the Spirit to come in and do what nobody else had been able to do. So we get to... Today, what is considered the final of the major judges in the book of Judges, this guy by the name of Samson. A couple of things are different about Samson's story and the story in Israel surrounding it. One of the things is this. Just like in all of the other cycles, the people have rebelled against God, and as a result, another group has come in. These are not ites. It's the Philistines. Everybody knows about them, Goliath being the most infamous of you know David and Goliath many, many years later. Well... There's going to be a long-standing struggle between the Israelites and the Philistines. And this is kind of the beginning of that. And they've spent, the Israelites have spent now 40 years living under the oppression of these people of the sea who have come in and, and taken over a significant part of the land, and particularly Judah. And the thing that's different as the story begins is that there is no record of any significant portion of Israel crying out to God. Where, as before, every other time, there's been repentance on the part of God's people. And in response to their cries, God says, okay, I'll send you relief. There's no record of anybody repenting. For 40 years, they've continued to live in rebellion and they've suffered as a result of it. And they're just rocking right along. And God finally just intervenes and says, enough. I'm going to send relief for my people. It's just a good reminder that sometimes... Even when we don't even do the right thing, when we don't even make any initiative toward God, sometimes God just steps in and says, this needs to be done. And even though nobody prayed for it, I'm going to do it anyway because I'm a good God and I'm a loving father. He is that way. Aren't you glad to know that? That there are times in our lives where God just says, you need this and you didn't even have the good sense to ask for it. I'm just going to do it because you needed it. This is one of those times. And so chapter 13 of Judges is devoted to describing the condition in Israel and God deciding to intervene and setting the stage for the arrival of Samson. But it's a little odd in that they, the writer spends a whole chapter telling us about the preparation for the birth of Samson. So you get the sense, man, somebody major is coming because the angel of the Lord comes and appears to this couple, a nobody couple in Israel, and he says to them, I'm going to give you a son. It's a couple that have been barren, which, by the way, any couple that... that in the room or that you know of that's struggling to have a child, let me offer a word of encouragement. Almost, it, it just feels like almost half the people in the Old Testament that God greatly used, it was children that he gave to a couple who had been barren for years and years and had just tried and tried. And out of that great sense of frustration and, and all of this tension and, and just feeling at the end of the rope that God would go, now I'm going to give you not only a child but a very special child. One more time, he does that. To a couple who could not have a child, the angel of the Lord speaks and says, You are going to have a son, and he is going to be very different. From the time of his birth until the time of his death, he will be set apart. He's to be set apart as a Nazarite. That's not a description of where he's from. It is a, a term designating someone who is particularly set apart to serve the Lord. And I know you didn't come for a history lesson, but you do have to understand this to get Samson's life. A Nazarite, it was a vow that you would take to be a Nazarite. And it didn't mean that you were a priest. It just meant that your life was in a unique way, totally set apart just for God. And normally a person would take a Nazarite vow for a period of time. It might be for some months or, or for a couple of years. And during that time, what 
they meant that they were dedicating themselves to was obviously to serve the Lord, but the outward ways that that would manifest itself is in addition to seeking to keep all of the Lord's commands, they would take on three other major things that they would do as just an outward symbol of the fact that I belong completely to God. And so here were their three. The one that they were best known for is you couldn't cut their hair. So over time, if somebody had a long Nazarite vow, you'd begin to figure that out because they'd get really long hair. Absolutely forbidden. You can't cut the hair. You can't put a razor on the head. That, that was a big one. A second one is no wine, which was really unusual in that culture where they were very much dependent on, on using wine. Absolutely no wine during the period of your Nazarite vow. You couldn't even drink anything from the grapevine period. You couldn't even have grape juice. And then the third issue was you could not touch any kind of uh, dead body, dead animal, dead person. I mean, it was a part of the law that it would make you unclean, but anybody else could touch a dead body. You would just have to go through the, the ritual to get rid of your uncleanness, and after a period of days, you'd be fine. A Nazarite, absolutely under no conditions, could touch a dead body. That's stuff that is like, okay, whatever, that's weird. You're going to be long-haired, you don't get to drink, and you don't get to touch dead bodies. Big whoop, right? Well, just know it was actually a big deal. Normally, people would only do this for a set period of time, but God said, this this guy Samuel is going to be so special. His whole life he'll be a Nazarite. Never touch a hair on his head. That's going to be really freaky, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine 30, 40, 50 years of hair? That'd get a little heavy, wouldn't it? Going to need some serious conditioner. Okay, it's going to have long hair, no wine, never touch a dead body, always set apart for the Lord. His whole life, that's to be the case. And the angel of the Lord says to the mother, in fact, in preparation for his coming, you too must take a Nazarite vow. You must live as a Nazarite, which is a great reminder on Father's Day. Anything that we expect of our kids, we really ought to be willing to model ourselves. And so the angel's going, hey, if your son's going to be a Nazarite from the time he's born, I want you to live that same kind of life. And so there's all of this to set the stage. A couple of different, different appearances from the angel to remind them of what this life is going to be like. And so at the end of chapter 13... God gives them a, a child, a son, and they name him Samson. And the opening words are, you know, positive and encouraging. If you look at the last chapter of chap, the last paragraph of chapter 13, verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So it's like, wow, this is great. Going to be a great prophet, maybe. Going to be a great spiritual leader. And it's as if at the conclusion of this chapter. And, and remember, before these words were ever written down, there was an oral tradition. These stories were told orally many times before they were ever written down. And you can just sort of hear in the background, between chapters 13 and 14, the listeners saying to the speaker who's telling this story, So what was Samson like? What was he like when he grew up? And in response, the writer says, Well, I'll tell you a few stories to capture the essence of what Samson was like. And let me tell you, it's going to take your breath away. This guy who's going to be a great leader in Israel. In fact, the, the angel of the Lord has said he will begin, key operative word there, begin to lead in Israel being freed up from the oppression of the Philistines. Well, now as the, the writer, the storyteller in chapter 14 is going to give us a glimpse of Samson's life, it is not at all what we expect. Chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Samson went down to Timnah. That's a Philistine city. Well, we don't want to hang out with them. That's the enemy. That's who he's here to run off. He went to hang out in Timnah, and there he saw a young Philistine woman. Look out. Warning sign. One of the most important commands from God is don't you marry those pagan women. 
And ladies, don't marry those pagan men. Because they will lead you astray. Stay away, stay away, stay away. By the way, that still applies today. Young men, young women, don't you marry those pagan men and pagan women. I don't care how hot they are. Stay away, stay away, stay away. Amen? Moms and dads, come on. Yes, indeed. Well, he saw one that looks good to him. So when he came back in verse 2, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. That's subtle, isn't it? He just sort of eased into that. I saw this woman and she looked fine. Get her for me. I mean, that's essentially where we meet him. You want to know what he was like? In one sentence, if we could give you one verse that's going to tell you what Samson's life is like, verse 2 of chapter 14 is a picture of Samson's life. Went to a town, wasn't a great town I should really be in, saw a woman I shouldn't be hanging out with, and I like how she looked. So I go running to mom and daddy and say, hmm, let me tell you about this woman I met today. Get her for me. That shows you so much of Samson's heart. His life is going to be dominated by passion and by, I've got to have what I want right now. He is always going to be impulsive. He is always going to be selfish. And he is always going to be after women. And this is the guy that God's going to use in a significant way. Well, the dad, kudos to the dad, his response to that is, Son, among all of God's people, could you not find one woman that would satisfy you? And Samson essentially goes, Nope. She's the one I want. You get her for me. And unfortunately, dad is not a strong dad. He doesn't do what a dad should do. When a dad should set a boundary and stick by it, he was a weenie. He went along with this. So the next glimpse that we get of Samson is, again, just a snapshot of what we're going to see characterized his life. It's just like you, you, you kind of get whiplash jumping from one part of the story to the next. The next thing we see, Samson's kind of skipping down the road. Oh, not skipping, but he's, he's you know, going down the road. And a lion comes out like it's going to attack him. And the scripture says the spirit of the Lord came on Samson in power and suddenly empowered by the spirit. He grabbed the lion and ripped him apart the way you would a young goat. I've never ripped a young goat apart, but uh, apparently some people are capable of that. And he ripped it apart like you, I guess, maybe if this were in our language and he were talking to me, he'd say like you would a Lay's potato chip bag or something. He just you know, ripped it apart. And so then the next scene we get, he's going to marry this woman that he wasn't supposed to marry, this pagan woman. And as he's on the way, he's passing by the place where he killed this lion. And he thinks about that, and he says, I think I'll go over here and see if the old lion's still laying there. And he looks, and sure enough, there's the, the lion carcass, what's left of it. And he sees an unusual sight. There are all these bees buzzing around it. We'd expect flies, but it was honeybees. And he looks closer. You can only imagine how, you know, the vultures and things have probably eaten out the, the guts of this lion. But in the hollow space inside the body of the lion now, the bees have, have created a hive and it's honeybees, and so he sees that there's this big beehive with a lot of honey in it, and he does what's forbidden. Can't touch any dead animals, and he goes over and opens up this carcass. I don't know how in the world you do this with bees, but anyway. He, he reaches in, and he takes out the honey, and this is really super nasty to me, because not only is he grabbing a dead carcass and taking honey out of it, but he starts eating the honey out of the dead animal carcass. He is like super breaking the law about don't touch anything you know, dead. Now he's eating out of the dead. And it's so good, he takes some to his mom and dad along the way and doesn't tell them where he's gotten it from, of course. 
And so then they just go on to the wedding. Just seems like an odd little aside. Well, they, they get to the wedding. You have to bear in mind in those days, a wedding didn't take place in one hour. It took place over one week. So day one of the wedding week, uh, Samson is given 30 men, 30 Philistine men to be his male wedding party. Well, you talk about a big wedding. This was a big wedding. And he doesn't like them. As you can imagine, they are not among his people and he's not thrilled about the, the Philistine side of this whole transaction. And so he decides he wants to make sport of them. And so he says, I've got a challenge for you guys. Let's see how smart you are. I'm going to tell you a riddle. And if you, any of you, any of the 30 of you in the span of a whole week, if you can solve my riddle, I will give each one of you a new linen garment and a new suit of clothes. 30 linen garments, 30 suits of clothes that I will give to you if you can solve my riddle, 30 people in one week. But if you can't solve that riddle, every one of you has to bring me a linen garment and a new suit of clothes. And they, you know, they were like, all right, we can handle your riddle, bring it on. And so he gives them the riddle, and it pertains to what just happened to him on the road. And his riddle is, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. Talking about taking the honey from the lion's carcass. Boy, they were just puzzled, and, and for three days, they struggled to figure that out. They couldn't even get close. And it just ticked them off. So on the fourth day of the wedding week, they go to the, the bride-to-be of Samson. She's one of their people. And they say to her, you've got to find out what the answer to this riddle is. Your fiancé is making a fool of us, and we're not going to have it. And in fact, if you don't get the answer to the riddle and give it to us, we're going to take you and your daddy and burn you to death. That's pretty high stakes. And so she goes to Samson and says, oh, honey, you, you're just making fun of my people, and you haven't even told me what the solution to the riddle is. You've got to tell me. Come on, sweetiekins. And, you know, he's like, I hadn't even told my mom and dad. Go on, you know, I'm not telling you the answer to that. So for three days, she pesters him to death. It gets to be the seventh day, and she's like, they're going to kill me and my dad. I've got to get the answer. So she is just worrying him to death with this thing. And finally he goes in and says, look, here's what the answer to the riddle is. And so as quick as she can get away from Samson, she goes to the 30 men, tells them the answer. And so they come back, and it's like the moment of truth. Your time is up, and they're like, we've got it figured out. What is sweeter than honey, and what's more ferocious than a lion? And it just ticks Samson off because he sees right through it. He's like, I tell my wife the answer, and 30 minutes later, you all know the answer. I know where that came from. So he says another verse to them in anger in response to what they've done. And it's a classic line. Man, you might want to write this down. Use it in a love note to your wife sometime. He said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. <laughs> it's a real loving tone. Speaking of your wife there, isn't it? I've been plowing with my heifer. He's mad. And so in response to this, on the, the culmination of wedding week, he takes off to the nearest Philistine town, just leaves in a huff. He goes and he, with his hands, he kills 30 Philistine men. And he takes their outfits and he comes back and pays off his bet with the clothes of the 30 men that he's murdered. And then he leaves in a huff and goes to his daddy's house. It is the evening of the consummation of his wedding. And everybody's like, okay, what do we do now? And the father of the bride goes, well, I guess the best man gets her since we've, we're at the end of the whole wedding thing and the groom just left. So best man, you, you get the bride. Okay, that's pretty weird, but it was a long time ago and it's how they did things. Well, Samson has just gone off in a huff and he stays gone for some time. We don't know how long. Eventually he cools off. 
And he decides, well, I guess I better go back into town and claim my bride. So he goes back and he finds the father of the bride. And he's like, well, I'm here to see my wife. And the dad's like, oh, well, you left. We thought you were gone for good. So we gave her to another man. She's married. Why don't you take my younger daughter? She was prettier anyway. You can have her. Samson is furious. And he says, I will get my revenge on these people. And I mean to tell you, he knew how to, how to carry a grudge. And so he went out. We don't know how many weeks or months this took. But he went out and trapped 300 foxes. I cannot imagine trapping 300 foxes. He pins them up until he has 300. And then he does a really cruel thing. He takes them in pairs and he ties their tails together. Apparently, foxes don't like that. I always heard growing up about what you could do if you tied cats' tails together and put them over a clothesline. That would be quite a fight. But uh, you know, ne never seen foxes with their tails tied together. He added one element to that. He put a burning torch, tied a burning torch, dragging behind the foxes. So you can imagine foxes with their tails tied together are going to run nonstop, trying to get away from whatever's pulling their tail and he took them to different parts of the Philistine countryside there. And it was the time of the wheat harvest. The wheat fields were all golden and brown. Everything dry and ready to be picked. And, but, you know, it only takes one little spark to just set that ablaze. He set these 150 pairs of foxes loose in all the wheat fields and the olive groves and in the grape vineyards. And he burned them to the ground using the foxes. The Philistines were furious. And they said, who has done this to us? It's cost us a fortune. And somebody said, oh, it was, it was Samson who did that. And so in response, you'd only imagine, you know, somebody's like, we should go and kill him. And somebody's like, have you seen the boy? <laughs> He's pretty husky. Well, let's go find his wife. We'll really hurt him. And so the woman who was supposed to be his wife that now didn't quite get to be his wife, they take her and her daddy and they burn them to death. And Samson gets word of this, that the woman you were supposed to marry has now been murdered because of what you did. Now he's really furious, and so he goes and he slaughters a bunch of Philistines. Which only now makes him public enemy number one in all of the land of Philistia. He is on the most wanted list. He is the head of the list. And so the army is now called out to go and find him, to kill him. And that causes great difficulty for the Jewish people. And in response, they say, we're going to call out our own army to find him and hand Samson over to them so that all this chaos can stop. So 3,000 men of Judah go in search of him. And he's hiding out at a particular place uh, in the wilderness. And so 3,000 men of Judah, they go and find him. And, it, you know, it's a scary thing. He's such a bad boy. And, and so when they find him, there's this face-off. And they're like, are you going to come easy? And he says... Look, I'll go with you if you promise that you don't try and kill me because I don't want to have to kill any of my own countrymen. So I'll go if you promise you're not going to try and harm me. They said, we're not. We just want to tie you up and hand you off. So they tie him up with ropes and they march him over. They send word to the Philistines. So now you can picture two armies coming to meet and a little ways off. They're like, okay, here's your guy. We're sending him to you. And it's now he's walking over and he's bound with these ropes. And the scripture says again that the Spirit of God came upon him in power. And suddenly he just flexed and he broke those ropes as if they were just little threads. And now as he's faced with... He's in front of the army of the Philistines. He sees nearest to him the body of, a, it says, a fresh dead donkey. Don't you know that smelled great? And he tore out of that donkey's body, once again, a dead body. He rips out of it the jawbone of the donkey. And he uses it like a club. 
And with that club, empowered by the Spirit of God, he clubs to death 1,000 Philistines in a day. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine with a gun killing 1,000 people. With a spear and a sword killing 1,000 people. He did it with a nasty jawbone. That had to take a while. I mean, John, how many times would you have to whack him? You're a pretty big boy. How many times would you have to whack somebody with a donkey jawbone to kill him? I mean, that's, that's a lot of work. Kills a thousand, and when he's done, he all but just beats his chest and says, Look at what I've done. I've made donkeys out of them with a donkey jawbone. I have killed a thousand men. And then the very next, the very next verse, he begins to cry out to God. God who just... Freed him up from this impossible situation. And he says, what's the deal here, God? Did you just deliver me from all these people so that I could thirst to death here in the desert? You're just going to let me die out here of thirst? He's a crybaby. He is. I mean, he's just, wah, wah, wah. God just did a miraculous deliverance. And, but I'm thirsty. And so God brings up water out of the ground and gives him something to drink. And it's like, Wow. That's our introduction to Samson. Well, let me tell you, there's more to come. Chapter 16 opens with this verse. Very next thought. So one day, Samson went up to Gaza, another Philistine city there, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. And the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. And they made no move during the night, saying, At dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there... Only until the middle of the night. And then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts. And he tore them loose, bar and all. And he lifted them to his shoulders and he carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Is that not just a crazy little little piece added in there? Oh yeah, one day he just decided to go in and uh, have sex with a prostitute in a pagan city. A pagan prostitute at that. As if... I know that you know, there's any other kind that would be better. but uh, And so they surround the city. They're going to take him in the morning. But he only stays with her till midnight. So at midnight, he realizes that they've set a trap for him. And just in anger over this, they think they've got him boxed in. And, and, and this guy, I mean, he truly is the closest thing to a superhero in all the Bible. He, he has this supernatural strength. And so he's like, you're going to box me in? Let me show you how much of a box I'm in. He rips down the doors that serve as the gate of the city along with the posts that they hang on. And on his back, he didn't just tear them down. He's making a statement. He drags them on his back to the hill overlooking Hebron. Okay, I realize not everybody here is a, is a Bible scholar. But if you look this up in the maps in the back of your Bible, you would find he drug the gates to the of the city 38 miles he's making a point (laughs) don't you mess with me and the writer is making a point that the spirit of God empowered him in a way that was just freakish so he, he you know takes off carries that away can't be taken and the very next thing that we read is that sometime later he fell in love with a woman another pagan woman in the valley of Sorek, and everybody knows the name of this woman. When you hear the name Samson, what name do you always hear with it? Samson and... Yeah, there you go. He meets this woman, Delilah. And once again, his passion wins out. I've got to have that woman. And we're not really sure that he married her, or if they just hooked up or shacked up, or what would anyway. They link up. 
And from the very start, the very next thing we read about Delilah is the Philistine leaders go to her and say, Oh, you can help us out. If you will find out the secret to his strength so that we can neutralize that, every one of us as leaders, we will give you 1,100 silver coins apiece. You will be a wealthy widow. And we'll take him out. And she cooperates with him from the get-go. Being wealthy sounded great to her. Sounded better than being married to the brute. And so... She starts this whole thing back and forth, and it just it seems silly. She goes into Delilah and says, Oh, honey, tell me the secret to your strength. And he just plays a game with her, and he says, Oh, well, the secret is, if you were to ever tie me up with seven thongs that had never been... Don't think swimsuit here. So thongs are like animal tendons or whatever. If you ever you know, tied me with seven of those that have never been dried out, then I would lose my strength. And so when he's asleep... She does that to him. And then she goes, she's got the, the Philistines teamed up with her. So as they're sneaking in, she goes, wake up, wake up, honey. The Philistines are upon us. And he jumps up and he breaks those seven things just like that. And, and they all run away. And she's like, oh, boo-hoo, you just tricked me. And so, you know, she stretches this thing out. You've got to tell me the secret. Why won't you tell me the secret? And he's like, well, the secret really is seven. If you tied me with ropes that have never been used before, that, that would take away my strength. So she does the exact, exact same routine when he's asleep. She ties him up with new ropes. Same deal when the Philistines get there. Wake up, wake up, the Philistines are upon us. And he jumps up and just snaps off the ropes and they run away. They do it a third time. The third one really gets absurd. This time... He says, all right, I'll tell you, it's about my hair. Now, he's getting closer to the truth. He says, if, if my hair, the se- he's got these long uh, braids, seven braids of hair. And he said, if these seven braids were ever woven into a loom. Okay, that's really weird. But he said, if you ever wove that in there, I would lose all my power. <laughs> he must have been a heavy sleeper. But as he's sleeping, she eases his hair into the loom. Same thing. Wake up, wake up. The Philistines are upon us. And he jumps up. And I'm sure he was a bit shocked that he had been turned into a rug or something. But he, you know, (laughs) rips himself loose and the Philistines run away. Well, this time she's just so angry and upset. And she just nags and whines about the whole thing. And so it's uh, there's just this great funny line in chapter 16, verse 16. Where she just kept on and kept on. And it finally says in verse 16, With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. (laughs) Men, don't answer this out loud. Have you ever been tired to death? (laughs) Ladies, you ever been tired to death? Well, he just finally had had enough. And he's like, I will tell you the truth if you will shut up. It's my hair. It really is my hair. I took this Nazarite vow. I've always been a Nazarite. Nazarites can't cut their hair. If my hair were removed, I would lose my strength. And she's like, now I have the truth. She goes and tells them, tells the Philistines, I really know the answer. It's his hair. If we cut his hair off, he'll lose his strength. And so this time when he goes to sleep, she has somebody help her and they cut off his hair. And this time, whenever she wakes him up and says, the the Philistines are upon us, in verse 20... It says, he awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But then the key line, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson thought his strength was in his hair. His strength was in the Lord. His hair was just a symbol of his commitment to the Lord. And when that was removed, it was a picture of the covering of God being removed and the strength of God being removed. And the, and the power of the Spirit had departed him. And so the Philistines seized him. 
They gouged out his eyes, and they took him down to Gaza. And binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. What a horrible picture. The strongest man ever in the history of Israel. And he gives in to a nagging woman. And in that moment, the power of God leaves him. The enemy overtakes him. They blind him. And then they set him to hard labor. And for months and months, it may have even been years, we don't know. He just works as a blind man, grinding. And it sounds like, surely that must be the end of the story, but it's not. There's this one little ray of hope that's given. And it says his hair begin to grow. Well, we know from what the writer has told us that his strength wasn't in his hair. His strength was in the Lord, and his hair was an outward symbol of this inward reality of a life that is dedicated to God. And we can only imagine how, as he was in prison, as he was grinding and in bondage, that his mind began to reflect on the past and on what God had done. And his heart began to change. And as his hair began to grow, it was reflective of a faith that was reemerging in God. Well, the day came somewhere down the line where the Philistines gathered for a huge feast at the temple of Dagon, their pagan god. And thousands of them gathered, all of their, their rulers and their wives and families, thousands gathered in this temple. And they brought Samson in because he was just like a circus freak. Watch the blind guy. Watch the tricks he can do. And they're having him perform, you know, feats of strength. And in the middle of all this... They've, they've chained him up to the central two columns in the middle of the temple. And there he is, the blind freak. And he just gets to a point of desperation where he realizes that he's got his hands on a vital point in the temple. And he just prays a prayer of desperation and says, Oh God, would you give me strength one more time so that today I can die with these Philistines? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power one more time. And empowered by the Holy Spirit with supernatural strength, he applied that strength to these two central supporting columns. And when he shifted them, the scripture says there were 3,000 Philistines gathered on the roof of this temple. And the whole thing caved in and thousands of the enemies of Israel were killed in that one moment of time. And the tragic commentary on Samson's life and death is found at the end of chapter 17 where it says, Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. What a sad thought that this man that had been set apart for God from the time he was born accomplished more with his death than he did with his life. And the writer concludes by saying, He led Israel for 20 years. Would you agree that this is a weird story? This is an odd, odd story. And the... The biggest twist on it all is that when we get to the New Testament and the writer of Hebrews is summing up for us some of the greatest examples of faith that we have in all of the Bible, and he gives us 12 examples, Samson is one of the 12. When he says, and you know, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Samuel, David, these who administered justice, who conquered kingdoms who closed the the mouths of lions, these men and women who accomplished so much by faith. Samson is mentioned in the middle of all this. What are we to learn from his life? I'm just going to mention just a a few things to you. I've listed five in the outline, and I'm really not going to expound a lot on it, just 
just to point them out to you. But one thing I'm going to say before the outline is this. To the single women in the room, here's a lesson not in the outline that's worth remembering. You will meet enough Samsons in your life. Stay away from them. They look good on the front end. Big and strong with rippling muscles. I mean, he could have any woman that he wanted. That was abundantly clear. He was that kind of guy. He was the, the man that women looked at and said, Wow, how'd you like to have that for your man? There are plenty of men that you will encounter in your life who are like that. But a man who lives by his passions and who lives with unbridled passion and selfishness makes for a terrible mate. Run away. Stay away. That's a terrible mate. Five things that we learn from his life that are worth mentioning. And the first one that's a real positive is this. And it is simply that God had a plan and a destiny for Samson just as he does for us. I think so many times we, we tend to feel like God watches our lives to sort of see how we're turning out. And then he decides whether he wants to do something with us or what he's going to do with us. And Samson's story is a great reminder of the sovereignty of God. And of the fact that God has a destiny for your life. Samson was a bad boy. There is very little redemptive in Samson's story that we can point to and go, Man, we see why God used him. The writer of Judges didn't see fit to give us much of any material in that regard. He lived in some pretty ungodly ways. And yet from before he was ever conceived, God said, I'm about to do something special to help my people. And I'm going to raise up this man to do that. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to begin to lead them to freedom, specifically to his mother. He said he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And this boy will be a Nazarite of God from the day of his birth until the day of his death. You know, the encouraging thing about that to me is God's plan and his destiny for Samson were not thwarted even in spite of Samson and his own folly. And the reason that I find that so encouraging is... If a person's destiny could be screwed up by their decisions, we would screw it up, wouldn't we? With our own selfishness and, and lousy choices. And it is just so good to know that we have a father. We have a real, caring, in-control father who says, in spite of all of your screw-ups and all of the things that would make the rest of the world give up on you, I haven't given up on you. I have a plan for your life. And it's not some pie in the sky, oh, I wish it had worked out kind of plan. No, I have a plan and a destiny for your life. I know what I'm going to accomplish through your life. And I'm moving you toward that destiny. It's easy for us to feel like, I don't know if my life's counting for anything. I, I don't know if I, I really matter. I want to tell you, if you're trying to find real meaning in life, it's found in Christ. He's the one who formed you and he had a plan for your life before your mama and daddy ever conceived you. There is a plan and there is a destiny for your life. Now, we can limit the impact of that plan. And there's little doubt in my mind that Samson did. I believe there's a lot more God would have done through Samson if Samson hadn't been such a hard-headed idiot. But it is such a great reminder of just the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God's plan and His destiny for us. The second thing that we have to notice in the story is that the Holy Spirit is the one that gave Samson supernatural strength to overcome his enemies. Remember this, that in the Old Testament, we're given like color snapshots 
of New Testament realities about what happens in the kingdom of God and in the spiritual realm. We're just given flesh and blood examples of these bigger spiritual realities. And the, the thing that we're given a snapshot of in the Old Testament is every time Samson faced a flesh and blood enemy, a flesh and blood threat, the Spirit of God just showed up and gave him unimaginable power to overcome every obstacle and every enemy, which is a reminder of the fact that God does that for us by the same Spirit. I mean, here again, just little snippets from his story. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and he went up to Ashkelon and struck down 30 of their men. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power and the ropes on his arms became like charred flax and the bindings dropped from his hands. And finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. What's the one thing that all of those stories have in common? The Spirit of the Lord coming in power as the necessary precursor to bringing victory. And the really cool thing is this. While in the Old Testament, it was a very, very rare thing that the Spirit of the Lord would descend on any person. Everybody here today, every person listening online, if you belong to Christ, the Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1 when he says, Oh, how I pray for you. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you could see His incomparably great power for those of you who believe that power is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and it lives in you. He could go on and expound and say, it's the same power that enabled Samson to rip apart a lion, to kill a thousand with a jawbone, to kill 30 with his bare hands. It's the power that God gives you that no matter what the enemy or the powers of darkness bring against you, that will enable you to have victory. And so in those moments of weakness, when you just feel like, I just can't go on, I can't resist, I just... I don't know how God could expect me to do the right thing. I can tell you how God expects us to do the right thing. He stirs up His Spirit in us to give us exactly what we need to overcome evil and temptation and to walk in victory. That same power lives in every one of us. A third truth is this. God gave Samson some very specific boundaries which he repeatedly violated. That's not really a good news part of the story, but it is a key part in the story. Four major boundary violations in his life over and over. One of the biggies was do not, do not, do not marry these pagan women. And he went after every pagan woman he could find. And what were the other three? Don't touch dead bodies, don't drink wine, and don't cut your hair. And throughout the story, it's just a running series of violations. He goes to the lion's carcass to get the honey. He, uh, he throws the feast. I didn't point this out in the story, but when he throws the wedding feast... The Hebrew term that's used there is a wine feast. It's a party where there would be much wine. He, he's breaking that one. We see him again and again uh, going back to the thing of the dead bodies, using the jawbone of a donkey. And at the end of the story, even pointing out, hey, if you just cut my hair, knowing that she's tried everything that he said, if you cut my hair, I'd lose my strength. And, of course, he's giving up his hair and doing that. Bottom line is this. Every one of those commands he violated again and again in his life which simply serves as a sobering reminder to us. It matters whether or not we operate within the boundaries that God has given. We're not a legalistic church, and we're never going to be. We're not going to run around with a long list of rules saying, this is what a good Christian looks like. You better live by our rules. We are a grace people. 
We are so grateful for the grace of God that is sufficient to cover our sins. But the grace of God is never a license for us to live like we're pagans. The New Testament is full of very practical, clear instructions about what is appropriate and inappropriate for a follower of Jesus. And we are going to take those things seriously. And what Jesus and the apostles have said is out of bounds for a believer, we're going to declare is out of bounds for us. We're living in an age where the culture, particularly in the news media and in every sitcom and half the dramas on TV right now, where the culture is declaring all kinds of things that God said are not appropriate for believers, that we need to say it's okay and it's good, and if we're really progressive that we ought to embrace all these things. And the bottom line is this, we will not change the standards of God or God's people to try and pacify the culture or to sound politically correct. Now, we're not going to be hard-hearted, cold people that say, hey, if you've got that problem, you stay out there. No, everybody is welcome here. No matter how you're broken or what you're tangled up in, we want so badly for you to be here and belong to this family because all of us are broken and dealing with something. But that's just it. As a part of this family, we are committed to dealing with our something. We acknowledge that we're all broken, but we're not going to stay broken. We're not going to achieve perfection, but we're going to keep our feet pointed in the right direction. And we are going to cooperate with the work of God's Spirit to deal with our brokenness so that our lives begin to look more and more like Jesus and more and more like a New Testament Christian. Which means I don't get to go live like a pagan and then post it on Facebook like everybody should cheer for me in that. And by the way, stop liking it when people post their junk. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't a part of the message, but I'm just going to throw it in for no extra charge. Do you all realize the foolishness of this? I mean, Facebook has become a billboard for us to tell the world just how big a bunch of idiots we can be sometimes. And then the other half of us are dumb enough to click like it. I think there needs to be an idiot button on there that says, I think you're an idiot. I'm sorry, that probably isn't very Jesus, but it feels that way. He violated all kinds of boundaries, and that stemmed from, number four, that Samson never learned to control his temper or his sex drive. They dominated his life. I mean, the thing that you just hear over and over in the story, woman, me want woman, you know, I like her, I got to have her, whether it's a prostitute or a pagan, if he saw a woman and he wanted her, he was hot to trot and he was going to get her. And if something made him mad, he was going to act on that over and over. Well, now I've got a reason. Now I'm going to get my full revenge. And so every time he'd get mad, somebody would suffer. Sometimes those that he loved would suffer. His enemies always suffered if he got mad. And Samson's story is a reminder that these two things will make for a miserable life, a miserable existence. If you don't learn to deal with your temper, if you don't learn how to deal constructively with anger, and if you don't learn how to deal with your own sex drive, you will be a miserable human being, a miserable mate, a miserable spouse. Now, I realize that there's probably nobody under the sound of my voice that stands at great risk of going out and killing 30 people because you got mad or tearing anybody limb from limb because of your anger. We don't murder people, not with our hands. But Proverbs says, that the tongue holds the power of life and death. And there are plenty of us who struggle immensely 
with our anger, our sarcasm, and we create all kinds of misery in the lives of those that we love with the things that we say. Some of us, we can in one line accomplish more, you know, the giving of more pain than you could with a good right hook. Because we know how to say just the right thing to cut, to dig, to just make someone feel so less than what they're supposed to be. Samson never learned to control his anger. And he never learned to control his sex drive. And I don't really have to go into that part. We all know countless examples of people who have never learned to yield their libido to the Lordship of Jesus. And whether it's chasing skirts, chasing guys in a bar, or surfing the internet to find the next video of the next naked woman. Those of us who cannot learn to yield our sex drive to the Lordship of Jesus and focus all of that energy on a lifelong mate will suffer great misery as a result. Samson did, and it cost him his life. This stuff really matters. Young people, listen up. I don't care what the statistics say. I don't care if 99.9% of your peers sleep around, think that oral sex isn't sex, think that pornography is just fun and funny and it's not, not a big deal. This stuff is deadly. And I could point you to all kinds of adults who would earnestly plead with you, please know it'll kill your marriage. It'll destroy you as a person. There is a huge price tag attached to anyone who embraces this and just doesn't realize that the huge weight that it brings with it. Learning to, to submit your, your temper and your tongue and your sex drive to Jesus is a huge part of being a follower of Christ. They don't earn your salvation, but they're a big part of you looking like a saved person. It's hard to look anything like Jesus if you can't control your temper and if you can't keep your pants zipped. Samson wasn't good at either one. And they ultimately led to his downfall. The final thing we'll say about Samson is this, that Samson's self-centeredness and pride made him a solo act with limited impact. This is a key part of, of Samson never addressing these major issues in his life, and it's the thing that will keep people tripped up today, men or women, living as a solo act. The, don't miss this, and I, I can tell we're, just, we're worn out today. I'm almost done. So what, please, if you've zoned out for the last four points, I need you to hear this last thing because it's a key piece. Samson led Israel for 20 years. And here is, as odd as the story is, I haven't pointed out the strangest thing in Samson's whole 20-year tenure. Here's the strangest thing. There isn't one sentence in the Scripture that describes Samson ever cooperating with or leading anyone in 20 years. He was a solo act from start to finish. It's how he lived his life. He was the judge for Israel for 20 years, and there's not one word of him ever even having a companion in battle. He never cooperated with anyone that the Scripture ever records. From start to finish, it's just, Daddy, see that woman? i got to have her. Go get her for me. That's about the closest thing to cooperation he gets in the whole story. I mean, the only army that he ever leads is 300 foxes. 
Seriously. That's the closest thing to leading an army we ever see. There is an army in Israel. Of all the battles that he fights, he always fights solo. That's why at the end of his life, when he brings the house down, and there are like 3,000 people killed. That's why the scriptures could accurately say he killed more people with his death than he did with his life. I want to tell you, David, he was a great warrior. We can't begin to count all the people who died, the enemies of God, who died at the hands of the armies of Israel who were led by David because David led men. David influenced other people. David wasn't a solo act. Israel was great under David because David worked with people. David had a circle of three. He had the 30 mighty men. He had a circle of of 300 and of 600. He influenced other people because he was connected. Samson was not. Samson just went after the women that he wanted. And when he faced a tough situation, he just faced it on his own. Friends, here's the scary thing. Here's, I'm convinced why God gives us this wacky story of dysfunction. Because Samson is a picture of modern manhood. Most men that I know in some way live much like Samson did. Guys, I don't know how it got built into our thinking or our DNA, but somehow most of us believe that we're a solo act. Most men are lousy at really connecting with other men. And some ladies struggle with the same thing, but ladies tend to be more relational. They get over this quicker. But most of us as men are rotten at really making personal connections that help us to be pulled upward and really learning how to be great men. And so most of us face all of the great battles of life as a solo act. And I just want to tell you a simple truth. The biggest challenges, and I'm really particularly now talking to men, the biggest challenges that we will face as men, they're not going to be a mean boss in the workplace. It's not going to be an enemy carrying a gun or a weapon. It's not going to be somebody breaking in your house. Those are not going to be the biggest struggles in your life. For most of us, the biggest struggles that we will face will be very private ones. It'll be a temptation to reach out to a woman who has been suggestive at work, who's sent a private message to you on Facebook, a temptation to get connected to someone or something online that's really appealing to you. It'll be a temptation for you to compromise your integrity financially. It will be a temptation that can be lived out and addressed the right way or the wrong way totally in private. And I just want to remind you, if you do that as a solo act, you will probably go down in history about like Samson did. Where you're a casualty of that situation. Because you see, God made every single one of us with a very great need to live in close connection to other people. He never wanted you to be a solo act. That's why He placed us in families. It's why He created in the kingdom of God church families where we live in connection with one another and where we're a part of a bigger family and a bigger army so that when we face the biggest challenges and battles of our lives, we don't face them alone. Some of the biggest challenges that are being faced today are moral dilemmas. And, and I mean, I know we clean up good on a Sunday, but I'm going to say it straight. There are some people right now, you came in this room 
carrying a heavy weight. Some of you are watching online because the weight was too heavy to bring in this room. Because you're losing that battle. I'm not here to beat you up about it. I understand. I understand how painful that is. And I understand how scary it is to be able to share that with someone. God doesn't want you to be a solo act. And His plan for your deliverance involves some other people. It involves you being able to share your story and your struggle with somebody else who can stand with you, who can speak truth into your life, who can help you be accountable, and who can help you every day put your feet pointed in the right direction and make sure you keep moving in that direction. And apart from a willingness to humble yourself and tell the truth and take the chance of trusting someone with your story so that they really can partner up with you and fight the good fight with you, there's a real good chance the enemy is going to wear you out. Samson's story is a story mostly of defeat. It's not there as a happy story. It's there as a sober reminder that though God loves us and His Spirit lives in us, we can have a lot of major lasting defeats if we don't get linked up with some other people in the family that enable us to be so much stronger. You remember, a cord of three isn't easily broken. He wants you to be linked up with some other people. It's why we are so big on things like Celebrate Recovery, where you wind up paired with a sponsor and you're in a community that really supports you and is open and transparent. It's why we're so big on small groups where people really get to know each other and pray for each other and check on each other and hang on to each other so that when you're in the throes of major problems and you can't figure out how to work this out with your spouse, that there's somebody else who's cheering for you and saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Tell me what's going on. How can I help you? Hang in there, man. Don't give up. I know what that feels like. Don't give in. And it's amazing the power that's stirred up in us when we do that. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, thank you so much for your love and for your grace and faithfulness. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit who lives in us and empowers us to walk in victory. Thank you for putting us in a family with others who love us and can help us to move forward. And God, would you help us to move beyond that vague sense of community where we sit in a room together for 90 minutes but don't really get to know each other, would you help us to move toward real intimacy where we really grow together and support each other and where this is not just the family of God, it is the army of God marching in victory together. Would you begin to, to speak into our lives and show us other people that we need to reach out to? I remember so vividly the first time you did that in my life, God. I thank you for how clearly you answer when we ask for this and i pray today for some who just feel like they are living in defeat that the enemy is winning out i pray that today god you would help them to yield to you and in fact maybe you need to do that right now maybe you just need to ask in a fresh way for the forgiveness of god in your life and for a fresh start and why don't you ask him as a next step god would you show me somebody that i could reach out to to connect with, to find real help and support and encouragement. God, would you give courage to each of us to reach out and find somebody who would walk with us in this life of faith. Thanks for your forgiveness. 
Thanks for your love. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.